Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Human Behavior Show. And today I'm joined by a resident psychiatrist, Dr. Scott. I thought I'd do this episode and, 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 and always reach out to Dr. Scott when anything I'm thinking about to do with psychiatry I want to discuss. And I thought it was pretty topical and pretty relevant to discuss grief. Uh, we all know the Queen of England has unfortunately passed away as of yesterday. The monarchy has a lot of different opinions on that as well. And there's obviously been a lot of respects. You know, it's really interesting how people are expressing their grief and, and showing respect. And it's just interesting to see the the um, science behind grief, why we feel grief, how we can kind of help alleviate that. And there was a concept I came across recently, the, the widow effect, of when a spouse passes away, how physically or from a mental health point of view, you deteriorate pretty quickly. And most often, sometimes the spouse can die within the year of the other spouse dying. I found that interesting. So here we have Dr. Scott with us today. We'll do a bit of an intro for him. Everyone knows me. I'm the digital doctor. Talk about psychology, human behavior, um, health, human performance, and technology. So Dr. Scott, would love for you to intro yourself. I know we're doing a super short episode here, but over to you. Yeah. Hi. Uh, my name's uh, Owen Scott Muir. Uh, my... Uh... I started writing recently, so I started using my middle name for that. Got a gnome de plume. Um, I, I'm trained as a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist, um, and I've had a lot of grief in my life. I've had a lot of lot of loss. I lost my my dad, um, and I work with suicidal patients. So, I've, unlike most psychiatrists, who you know on average don't don't have patients you know dying as much as other doctors do, um, I have. And not not just mine, but in, in the practice I ran, um, we had a, a number of patients, you know, expire. Um, and we don't really know how to talk about it um, as a field. Uh, we're, you know, humans tend to pathologize grief. Um, and there are healthier and, and less healthy ways to deal with it. And there are healthier and less healthy deaths for us to process. And, you know, there isn't like, you're not handed the manual on how to cope with the uh, loss that all of us get as our, you know, gift and curse as we enter this world. We're going to lose everyone, including us at some point. And um, actually the queen, <laughs> the late queen is the one who has my favorite quote about this, which is, you know, the, the heartbreak is the price we pay for love. We pay the price at the end, not at the beginning, but that's the ticket price is heartbreak. And so trying to avoid it, which a lot of people do, I think it's a bad plan. Scott, that's quite the introduction. I kind of love how you kind of set that up there. Um, yeah, it's, it's something that, as you said, inevitably we all have to face, and that's kind of the, the reality. And often we all realize it when someone of you know a, a certain standing or influence passes away. I mean, countless examples in the whole world unites and pays tribute, um, and we remember how um, you know, grief affects us all, but on a micro level, we all go through parts of grief, be it family member or whatever. Um, so being able to cope with it and deal with it, understanding the natural process, I think is super important. And I think listeners will find that really interesting learning from kind of you with your specialisms as well. And, and I kind of love that quote from the queen as well. Um, I do kind of respect the queen Elizabeth and, um, I guess, um, she meant a lot for, for a lot of the world. So it's interesting to see how people, paying tribute in, in different ways um and in, in the uk there's been kind of an announcement of you know days of mourning and there's a funeral 
um, and you'll see a lot of events being cancelled, etc. Um, and, and people will mourn in their own way. So, Scott, to start off with, um, could you tell us about the process of grief? Um, when might we feel grief, and, and what what is the kind of what is grief? So, uh, this was a, a big kind of question for the field of psychiatry. Our our diagnostic manual, the the DSM now edition five, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, had a uh, much debated bereavement exception for major depressive disorder. Um, because we wanted a way to denote that to feel sad or even what would otherwise be depressed was normal in some contexts. And a lot of research went into kind of that question, like what's normal, what's not. At the end of the day, um, I think suffering is normal, right? It's part of being human is, is that loss. The thing that, that ends up being maybe not, you know, abnormal, but not, not within the range of things that are healthy. Cause the, you know, the question for medical professionals is, is this something we're going to try to do something about? But the more important question is what things aren't we going to try to do something about, or what range of things are we going to try to stick our nose into? And, you know, ironically, I think, I think lifestyle medicine is probably better equipped to talk about grief with patients than, than psychiatry because, Dealing with grief in a healthy way is part of a healthy lifestyle. Psychiatry is generally tasked with dealing with problems. And grief isn't necessarily a problem for the person. It's a problem with how life works, which is it ends. And we have to suffer loss and we have to make some kind of sense of it. And so who's there to help you in that process? is a crucial question that I think we're getting closer to having more meaningful answers for with interventions like psilocybin, for example, um, which has been used to help people at the end of their life. But there's very little attention given um, until it becomes, you know, a, a clinical problem uh, to the, the issue of how do we cope with the completely 100% predictable loss of everything that we care about, which is all of our inheritance. Yeah, and I think I think you've raised some really good points there, and how maybe grief is an all point part part of life, and, and something that lifestyle medicine, living a healthy life, is you know it's part of that. Whereas psychiatry be something a bit more you know pathological going wrong, whereas everyone you know has to go through grief. Do you see? Are we? Do some people deal with grief better than others? I've heard a lot of people. Some people say they use the word "Hey, we're just heartless. We don't get affected by this." Um, for example, I had someone who said, "Oh." The queen passing away didn't affect them, but her sisters were like, um, you know, quite down about it. So why do you think it affects us differently? Is it genetic? Is it how we've been raised? Um, Does it hit us later? What are your thoughts on that? So the best predictor of human behavior is always, actually, um, as far as we can tell, uh, environment and and social environment. Kind of what's expected of us is the best predictor of what we're going to do. And so what's, what makes uh, any given loss more or less easy to deal with? And often we're talking about death, but it doesn't have to be. You can grieve the loss of a job. You can grieve the loss of a lover. You can grieve the loss of things good and bad uh, and, and should. 
And we don't have the same kind of rituals around other kinds of grief that we have with death. But uh, grieving, you know, uh, uh, eulogy right, is, is a way we grieve. We, we tell the story of the person in a way that we hope sums up and makes some meaning of a memory. Um, we have, we have songs for this purpose. We have in memoriam, right? We have all this kind of structure around grieving loss in this specific context, which is death. And I think like different people are kind of like a differently impacted, right? They have different levels of kind of like emotional range and they also feel different amounts of closeness. So like not everyone cares about the queen. I'm in the U S like, she's not my queen. It's a bummer, but not one that's like emotionally kicking me in the chest. And it's not cause I'm, crass or don't care it's because she wasn't the same way a part of my life that the royal family is for so many people in in the uk and in countries that uh did less of a thorough job of pushing away from the crown as it were uh when the u.s did but we we all lose people and lose things and lose ideas and have to move on and how much we're able to move on how much we can drop it it's not an evenly distributed trait. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because um, it depends how, how you value something. Like even, even for me, I've never really been into the royal family, even though I live in the UK. Um, I know for others, it's, it's more. So for me, yeah, it's, it's sad that, you know, Queen's passed away, you know, we have a king, but it doesn't affect me in that way. Like um, even even the passing of celebrities haven't haven't as per se affected me in that way. Yes, certain deaths are shocking because the ways they happen, say a drug overdose or whatever, or someone is so young or they have this family left behind, you feel sad, right? But you're right; it's about that connection you have with someone. I think people you know personally has a more impact. But I think with celebrities or famous people, it's just everyone's on the bandwagon, so you see it over and over again. So it may not affect them; it may just seem like it affects them. And I find that phenomenon interesting. So going back to this. So this is a phenomenon in medicine. Um, I can't put, it's a Japanese word. It's Tokusobo disease where you can, you know, obviously, uh, your uh, it's like heartbreak causes you. Uh, it can call. It can even cause death distress, which is pretty sad. And 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 when I was reading about that, I came across the widow effect, where a spouse passing away often in the first three months, the mortality of the other half passing away is 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 is, is highly likely, uh, especially if you're old. Um, it's just interesting seeing that link between, you know, our mental health and stress, emotional stress, and how that can cause such a response in the body that could even lead to death. Um, and um, they say men are at increased risk than women because women often have better social support systems, are, are more likely to form more friendships, and that helps prevent that from happening. Whereas for men, they're less likely to do that. And some research which, which has suggested that. Um, Owen, Scott, would love your take on that. Takasubo cardiomyopathy is one of my favorite phenomena in medicine. Um, and that's the, the broken heart syndrome you're referring to. And this is a case where the heart muscle, in the context of a severe emotional stressor, gets so shocked, the muscle of your heart gets so shocked that it dilates and it, it acts like a heart that has a structural cardiomyopathy, right? The, the heart muscle stops functioning the way heart muscle is supposed to in the same way that it does when you have congestive heart failure, except it's temporary and it's from an emotional impact or, or it can be so severe, you know, you mentioned it can lead to death. 
practically, this is the kind of thing where people have feelings, and those feelings influence our bodies because our heads are connected to them. There's a neck there, and our nervous systems talk to each other. And uh, there are ways we can deal with that and intervene on that, actually at the level of the neck, um, which I can talk about more, but um, our brains and our bodies are physically connected and talk to each other all day long, whether we're thinking about it or not. doesn't mean it's not true. I would love for you to talk about the level of neck a bit more if you can. Uh, I'm actually headed to Chicago next week uh, to meet with Dr. Eugene Lipoff, who is the inventor of the, or popularizer at least, of the stellate ganglion block. So there's a, a two uh, left and right, because we're bilateral <laughs> symmetry creatures, uh, and we have uh, the sympathetic nervous system has inputs to the brain um, called the stellate ganglion chain. And it's just a bunch of nerve bundles all connected together that go from your body to your brain. And you can go in if you want, if you happen to be an anesthesiologist trained in this approach. Usually this is people trained in, in pain medicine as a subspecialty. Um, and relieve emotional pain. And the way they do that is by injecting uh, bupivacaine, which is modern lidocaine, as a nerve block. And you're nerve blocking first on one side and then the other. Um, the nerves that conduct the signal from your body to your brain about how freaked out you are. And this leads to people being immediately, in many cases, calmer and less stressed out. And so they have the cognitive experiences of having, for example, PTSD. This was pioneered in the military. Um, and still frequently used in that population. And I'm actually meeting with him about larger scale deployment of that and how to scale it out. Um, but it's possible to go in and, and get this, like, literally an injection in your neck that lets you deal with trauma in a more healthy way. I actually got this injection myself about four weeks ago just to see what the fuss was about. And it's quite a thing. That's actually super interesting. Something I actually wasn't that aware of. So you, so how have you felt since getting this injection? So it's kind of like being on Xanax all the time, but without being high. Um, I feel much more calm all the time. Um, I've had people, I don't have PTSD. Um, I've had a lot of traumatic experiences. I'm lucky enough to have be one of the people who didn't develop a disorder as a result of that. But plenty of people do, and I have some friends who do have legitimate, like, severe PTSD from severe trauma who went in and got this procedure. And they report to me that almost, you know, literally that day, the next day after this nerve block was complete, their ability to experience their feelings changed in a way that was really beneficial. They didn't have to deal with the same level of kind of overdrive of, of panic and fear uh, because the fear thoughts were in their head, but they weren't being reinforced by the sensation of the beating heart being conducted directly into their brain because we turn down that amount of signal by using targeted bupivacaine. I find it fascinating how we're kind of moving towards things like psychedelics, but also um, these type of modalities to, to help us um, you know, alleviate some of these human experiences and, and how they're working. So I really think this is the, ne the next frontier. Um, and yeah. Scott, compare yeah. it real quick to like a medicine like Xanax, right? Xanax is a, is a benzodiazepine, alprazolam, and it's highly addictive. It has a very short half-life. 
you have to take it four times a day <laughs> if you're taking it for anxiety. It doesn't seem like a good deal. It causes cognitive impairment, withdrawal. Like, who wants that? What you want is to not feel freaked out. And this is a way using an understanding of the nervous system to do an intervention that doesn't have a broad range of side effects for most people um, and doesn't have systemic effects. Bingo. Which is a big, big plus. Um, and and see that be useful for a lot of people. So we've talked a lot about grief and you've touched upon trauma as well. We've covered trauma in the past. Um, and a lot of people obviously go through trauma and there's ways of, you know, um, coping with that, but also getting treatments as well. And, uh, Dr. Scott, you talk a lot about EDMR at times as well. Um, do you think, um, do you think after facing traumas, um, we can all, we can ever go back to our, our normal selves after treatment or would there always be an element of, of that trauma can, can reappear? Well, my, my answer to this is uh, our normal selves are never the same from one day to the next. That's a fiction that we tell ourselves uh, and it's a convenient one. It gets us through the day, but it's not actually true. Right? We're changing with every experience we have. Uh, can you go back to being a more functional person who has you know, hopefully some of the growth from learning from that difficult experience and maybe you're better. Yeah. Okay. This leads me on to actually a, a very nice innovation and touch one tech as we like doing the episodes. So last week or was it two weeks ago, there's an announcement of a big um, funding by a company called happy ring 60 million. They've raised and the co-founder is ex co-founder of Tinder and essentially what they're doing is they have a mood ring. So you may be a bit, you know, people, people have heard of mood rings and Chinese medicine, etc. right? But not that type of mood ring. This is a ring which tracks your stress levels, emotion through sensors using, um, you know, things like temperature, um, as well as electrical conductivity in your skin. And what the kind of, what the kind of claim is, that they give you a score from zero to hundred on how stressed you are, and that data can help you work out what are your stresses, um, what can you kind of do to prevent that, and, and it also does stuff like measure your sleep and things like that as well. Um, it's interesting because a lot of the devices, like, um, but I know for example, sleep staging isn't accurate for a lot of these devices, right? Talking to an Oxford neuroscientist, um, only I was in London a week ago, a few days ago, and she was like, how oh, you need you really need the headsets to kind of measure electrical brain waves, and she's doing research on how we can improve deep sleep um, using um, auditory stimulation in a lab. In the deep, if you can catch when the deep sleep's happening for someone, and the purpose of that is that you can consolidate short term memory into long term memory, and therefore you can improve exam performance, like better at math the next day because you're retaining more. So that's what she is. It's a pretty cool project. But with wearables, there's very interesting stuff. We have the Apple Watch watch launch. Um, you know, the new version, and they talk a lot about health, health on your wrist. So wearables are definitely getting a lot of investment and a lot of buzz right now. But this mood ring found an interesting concept. Um, you know, we've looked at sleep, we've looked at nutrition apps, we've looked at exercise and physical activity. But the new thing is, is trying to track stress somehow, trying to track mood. I mean, Amazon tried this with the Halo last year where they were sending reports of kind of how someone's feeling. I've not heard much of the Halo out of beta. I've not actually, I don't know if that, that passed, it failed, what the clinical studies on that were like. But 
people want to know, seem to have this fascination with tracking someone's mood and stress levels. So, oh, and I don't know, Dr. Scott, I don't know if you've heard of this, the, the happy ring. Um, that's uh, kind not- of on, on um, beta. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. Like, there's a difference between things that are going to you know, change the world because everyone wants and needs them, whether they know it or not, and things that you can convince a venture capital investor will change the world long enough to take their money and burn it. Um, at the end of the day, for it to matter for people's health, it actually has to work and they have to engage with it. It has to provide a meaningful benefit um, and or has to just be addictive enough that people want to use it all the time, like our goddamn phones, right? So I never have to worry that I might forget to check my text messages. That's not a worry that haunts me because I will always check them. I would grieve for my battery should it die in my phone. (laughs) Right. Um, because they figured out with, you know, behaviorism, how to reinforce our use of our phones endlessly. And they didn't stop until it's all we did. Um, you know, the same kind of uptake has not been the case with health technology products. So, uh, you know, I will, I'll, I'll wait for the data. So Scott, but do, you, do you think it's possible to measure? Is mood something that's measurable? Is stress something that's measurable? What's the difference between stress and mood? Because I think it's it is different. Because they claim parasympathetic nervous, yeah, there's a fun thing. Sympathetic. Our feelings are a story we tell ourselves. So, what's the difference between a stressful day at work and a date? <laughs> Physiologically, basically nothing. Heart rate goes up. You know, different changes in skin conductivity, temperature, etc. Like feeling stressed out. And, and feeling aroused, physiologically pretty similar. If you don't believe me, don't ever go on a date to coffee again and then go on a date to coffee. <laughs> and you look at the person like, oh, my God. I mean, you know, you're getting married. They're married already. So uh, take your wife on a coffee date and see if your heart rate goes up and you get reminded of why you married the person in the first place. We're always telling ourselves a story about our feelings based on the information that they're giving us. And so the thing about that that doesn't make too much sense to me is it's not like we're not getting the freaking bulletin, <laughs> right? Our feelings are yelling at us all the time. We were, if stress is not something about which we are often unaware. Uh, the whole point of stress is it makes you aware of its place. Maybe you're not interpreting it well, but it's not like I'm going to go, I wonder if I'm stressed. Like, no, I have a pretty good sense. Like the degree to which you can quantify that and the degree to which you can give me feedback that's helpful to be less of that may be okay. But that's uh, not something I'm going to, like, miss. <laughs> I actually love that example. Of, physiologically, you're right. The same thing is happening going on a date versus, you know, a stressful day at work. And that's super interesting is how we interpret and tell ourselves, that, oh, that was a good stressor. That was a bad stress. Uh, but, yeah, the same um, response is happening. <laughs> and um, actually, I love that example. And, yeah, I am married, so... <laughs> I don't know if marriage adds more stress or less stress. I'm joking. I think um, there's interesting studies on that, actually. Um, they say people who are happily married are more content and their health improves. But people, obviously, who who don't marry a person they're compatible with, then that can be a whole disaster in itself. But overall, um, a happy marriage leads to better health outcomes. And that's what the research shows right now. I find that super interesting, the relationships and, and mental health link there as well. Um, to Scott, we've covered a lot here, and I, I know you have to go, and, and it's been super um, informative having you here on the show once again, as we always do, to discuss something that's very topical and something you know people have been asking about. Um, 
and um, you know something that's quite um, uh, pivotal in a lot of people's lives. Some people, after grief, they change their habits and their behaviors, and they become different people. You'll hear a lot of patients who said, "Oh, our, our dad passed away, and then I, I stopped smoking." For example, I did this. It seems to be a trigger point for a lot of people: grief, um, a, a point of self-reflection. Uh, a point of, of change as well and, and can really uh, make people a bit more self-aware because I think no one likes that feeling of grief but we have to go through it that cycle of grief especially with bereavement there's a natural cycle of, of when you'll start to feel better um, so Scott to kind of finish off I want to know where can people follow you where can yep. they reach out to you please let us know yep so I am on Twitter uh, at Scott Muir uh, MD um, I am I have a Substack, which is linked in my profile on this app uh, it's the Frontier Psychiatrist on Substack. That's also linked from my Twitter. Um, and those are the probably easiest places to find me. I, I uh, try to avoid Facebook to the gray can. Basically meta-related things. Um, you know, because they're just... Uh, nah, I'm not going not gonna to waste the time on it. But those are the places to find me most easily. <laughs> I have a podcast coming out soon uh, called, called Quadruple Health, which is talking about the quadruple aim in healthcare. Better patient experience, better outcomes, lower cost, better provider experience. And that's the story. And now I'm going to go talk about how to make a whole school system better here in the U.S. and uh, have there be less grief for young kids is, is that goal. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on, and I'd, I'd love to do this on the regular. Yeah, of course. Congrats, um, Dr. Scott, on, on the podcast coming as well. And yeah, not always are willing to help. We just have to reach out to you, and you're, you're good to go. I know you're so passionate doing so many things. Good luck uh, on, on your next session as well. Uh, guys, do follow Dr. Scott. He's a brilliant individual that I always have learned a lot from, especially during this year. <laughs> but Scott, I will catch you very soon. We'll do another episode in, in, in a week or so. Awesome. Have a great day, everybody. Take care. Bye. So guys, for so this last segment of, of the show, um, just wanted to kind of uh, do a bit of housekeeping. Um, so the Human Behavior brand has also partnered with Apollo Health, which is a wearable, um, which uses vibration to help you um, feel certain states, um, and, and, and I've just started beta testing it. Um, uh, Dr. Dave Rabin is the founder of the wearable. Um, when he was in beta, about being used by Manchin, was was a tester, and over the last year or so, it's been released to the public. And I just got my my Apollo now, and um, I'm seeing how it affects. Is it, it's it works by stimulating um you know your parasympathetic nervous system and hopefully making you feel more relaxed in times of stress so there's different modes different vibrations that apollo provides it's on your wrist or you can wear on your ankle and these gentle vibrations uh, these kind of sessions help over time make you feel calmer or achieve certain states in different modes such as you know relaxing focus etc all right i'm going to try all the modes and i'll be react i'll be um giving feedback uh, on a uh, my podcast as well as on clubhouse as well and and i hope to find some interesting things i'll tell you how how i find it but if anyone is interested in finding um out more you can kind of read my latest newsletter and um we also will have a discount for the human behavior community as well that people can use um hopefully and um get benefit from it and and i, I do encourage people to check it out um you know in this day and age we're going so fast we need any edge we can get and if we can use technology to help augment human performance i'm a big fan of that right if i've come out of a meeting of stress i've got a presentation coming up 
I can switch on something to feel focused straight away. Or, you know, post-workout on a Friday night, I want to relax, I can switch that on. I think that is a super cool utility, and I'm super excited how they use artificial intelligence to kind of augment it, automatic, you know, zone switching with the Apollo. So Apollo is super exciting wearable for me. So as I start using it, I'll see how it makes a difference in my life and, and report back to the rest of you as well here. Um, and, and hopefully we can, uh, we can um, get some great results. And, and Dr. Dave Rabin was one of the podcasts we had here on the Human Behavior Show. So you can check that out one out. It was a few episodes ago where he talks about how it works. Uh, Dr. Rabin is a psychiatrist and neuroscientist. So a lot of knowledge, a wealth of knowledge there as well. Um, so, um, we'll be getting him back on and he's also doing regular shows over on Clubhouse. So his psychedelic report, super popular on Fridays. So you can check that out, get the latest and what's happening, pop up, ask him some questions. And he's brought in some very interesting guests from top universities to talk about, you know, all things, mental health, stress, psychiatry. So definitely urge you to kind of catch up with our shows over there, um, where we'll be covering a lot of different topics now with the partnership with Apollo um, Health, which is a super innovative company. Apart from that, for the human behavior brand, we're trying to do more shows. We'll be partnering and bringing more and more guests and people, content creators, and keep growing with the community. So uh, really a big thank you. I've been busy over the last, uh, I guess, month or so getting married, um, which has been really interesting, especially being a founder of a matchmaking app. I think it gives me more and more... um, um, you know, uh, certainty in myself that I understand relationships better because now I'm in one. I can really see what people should look for in a spouse. So if you are interested in my matchmaking app, Amelie, A-M-E-L-I, it's available on the App Store. You can definitely sign up to that. Um, and um, we would love people's feedback as we try and innovate in this space of relationship, mental health. Everyone knows I'm super passionate about human behavior, why we make decisions, um, you know, how we can help optimize our decision making um and um we'll be doing more and more podcasts on that so this is kind of a big thank you episode for people who turn up and listen to the podcast please give us a rating five stars would really help us uh, get up in the rankings um as we grow only um you know less than six months into the podcast and have had amazing feedback already so with the support of everyone really appreciate it got some very interesting guests and shows coming up so stay tuned and you can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Save MTRs. You can also reach out to me on LinkedIn and on Clubhouse as well. Always happy to help. Otherwise, there's a digital doctor. You can, if you want to collaborate, you can reach out to me. And, and we do take uh, partnerships with brands or individuals who want to be interviewed. Um, and we can kind of um, set that up. So that's it for me. Um, Really looking forward to catching everyone in future episodes here on the Human Behavior Show. We've kind of done this pretty quickly, but we've, I think we have some fantastic content right now. So do make sure to kind of catch up on some of the previous episodes if you've missed any, and we will try to keep making some great content. That's it for me. Take care, everyone. See you in the next episode.